Southern American author and philosopher Walker Percy once described humanity as waiting for news. Waiting for news. Humanity, he said, is waiting for news. And I saw that and I thought, that is so true. Uh, There was a day when there wasn't 24-hour news uh, going on, but uh, nowadays it's even more true than ever. We are constantly checking the news. Some of us watch hours and hours of cable news each night. Uh, Some of us carry the news around with us all day with our phones, and we get push notifications any time something new happens. Up, government shut down. Up, look at the Donald Trump tweet. Up, another Democrat threw her hat in the ring for the the, uh, 2020 election cycle. We we are committed uh, to keeping up with the news, but the problem uh, that I have is that if you read through the headlines, the vast majority of it is bad news. And I think that's the reason why some of us come uh, to gather at church each Sunday morning. In other words, I think I know uh, why you are here if, if you are here for the same reason as me. You are here because you are hoping against hope that somehow, somewhere, there is still a place where you can get good news. In other words, you're hoping that the message that you first heard when you became a Christian, that you are loved and that you are forgiven, is still true, and that's still your story. Some of you are here today kind of like a parched soul looking for a cup of cold water, and it's our hope and our desperate prayer that if anything good were to come out of this new series, is that we could offer you a cup of cold water in Jesus' name, because the gospel, according to Matthew, is good news. If you're thirsty for news this morning, you came to the right place. What we're going to do for the next three and a half months is journey with Jesus from the time that he steps onto the pages of history until the time that he is crucified and ultimately raised from the dead using the first gospel as our guide. I remember very personally when I first studied the gospel of Matthew, it was the first time I had ever done an inductive Bible study verse by verse in the Word of God. I opened up my Bible, I opened up a notebook, and I began to write and to write and to write, and I was spellbound by this man, this Jesus of Nazareth. I was a sponge. I was full of joy. I felt like I was a starving man who had a banquet uh, prepared for him. Uh, You couldn't stop me. I had found my life calling. I had so much more to learn, but I was finally getting started in my journey of following him, and I hope that you feel that way as you journey with us over the next few months together. Uh, There are four accounts which give us the life of Christ because there are four different perspectives that can be looked at when it comes to Jesus. I like to think of the gospel as like a diamond. You can look at it from one particular angle and Uh, This particular perspective gives us a a different brilliant shine, and then you shift the diamond just a little bit, and you see from that perspective, it's still brilliant, but in a totally different way. And and so the four Gospels are, are different, but all brilliant. Oftentimes, you'll see them pictured with these four symbolic faces drawn from the prophet Ezekiel. John's gospel often depicts Jesus as an eagle. Uh, He talks about the matchless majesty of our Lord that comes from the heavens, that soars down from above. He is truly God from truly God. Mark depicts Jesus with this animal of the ox because he is our, our strong servant. Luke with the face of a man because Jesus is, is the second Adam, the, the perfect man. And then Matthew. Matthew always depicts Jesus as the lion. 
In Genesis 49, there's a prophecy that says that the scepter will never depart from Judah, the lion's whelp. Matthew depicts Jesus as the coming expected Jewish king. And so we're going to use him as our guide from now till Easter Sunday. I'm so excited about this. I'm really pumped. And I know Pastor Bob is pumped up too. And what we're going to do in this series is that we're going to look really closely at the life and ministry of Jesus together. So we'll look at his most significant sermons. We'll look at his most significant teachings. Uh, We'll look at some of his most significant miracles and some of his most significant conversations. And we're going to travel from the the beginning days of his uh, traveling around as itinerant teacher to ultimately him becoming at the end of his life the savior of the world as the great sacrifice for the sins of humanity. And what we're going to see is that this Jesus completely changed the world forever. Today I want to give you an introduction to this awesome book as we just overview the first three chapters. And so you'll see three parts to the message today. First we're going to see the heir, then we're going to see the nightmare, then we're going to see the one who comes to prepare. The heir, the nightmare, the one who comes to prepare. And that is a pretty good outline of it, do say so myself. But before we do that, let's pray. Lord Jesus, open our eyes and our hearts and minds and teach us what it means to know you, to serve you, and to live as you taught us to live, love as you taught us to love, and even pray as you taught us to pray in this very gospel, together praying, our Father who art in heaven, join me if you can. Hallowed be your name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let me begin today by skipping ahead to Matthew chapter 3. I'll come back to the other material in a bit. But for now, let me just fast forward to the beginnings of Jesus' adult ministry. In chapter 3, Matthew turns his camera angle onto a very strange and mysterious prophetic figure named John the Baptizer. Take a look at chapter 3, verse 1. In those days, it says, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. In the first century, right before Jesus goes public, this man steps onto the pages of history in order to prepare the way for the coming of the Lord. And what was his message? Well, it tells us. He came saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, you have to realize the context here. This is a prophet of God. There has been no prophets for the previous 400 years. And then all of a sudden... Here comes the one who will proclaim that the Messiah is here along with his kingdom. And Matthew goes on to say this in verse 3. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah. When he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Now, every good concert you've ever been to needs a good warm-up act, right? Recently, we took our middle daughter to see one of her favorite country music rock bands, uh, Dirk Bentley. So we traveled in on train to Madison Square Garden, uh, but Dirk Bentley didn't take the stage till hours and hours later. First, they had the warm-up acts. I remember one of the bands uh, was Lanka, which I thought was pretty good, but they were not the main event. 
That, that was the warm-up act. They were there to prime the pump, right? Their job was to kind of warm up the audience to get ready for the main show. In a sense, John the Baptist is like the warm-up act. It's interesting that during this time period, uh, when someone important would come to your town, like an important Roman dignitary, a Roman official, if they would come traveling into your city, uh, they were always preceded by someone that they would call the herald. And the herald would go on before them and prepare the way for the person of prominence to let them know that they were coming to clear the way and to prepare the roads and so forth. So what's also significant here is that during that time period, uh, when the Roman emperor would visit a town, they would refer to him as the Lord. Caesar is, is Lord. But here John says he is preparing the way for the Lord, but it is not Caesar. He is preparing the way for the Lord of glory. His kingdom is at hand. Matthew goes on now to describe John a little more for us. Verse 4. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. Now, we see that and we think, okay, this guy John is a little unusual. Okay, let's just face it. This guy John's a little weird. This guy lives out in the desert. He wears strange clothes and he eats bugs. Ladies, you know how sometimes like your husband seems like he doesn't have any fashion sense? You know how sometimes he comes down getting ready to go out and, and you're like, honey, you need to go back upstairs and fix that, whatever you got going on there. Look at this guy. I mean, it could be worse, ladies, okay? And, and this was not normal back then. In fact, James Edward, a, uh, an expert on John the Baptist, says this, quote, the description of John's dress was nearly as unusual in John's day as it would be in ours. In other words, John does not look like, act like, or sound like his culture. He is out of step. Now think about that for a moment. How in step with this world's culture do you feel like you need to be? Now don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that you should be weird just for the sake of being weird. But let me just ask you this question. Do you always have to be in style or accepted or in step with this world? Teenagers, do you always have to be just like everyone else? Or would you be willing to embrace the kingdom of God and who he calls you to be? And what we're going to see throughout this series is that when it comes to his kingdom, if you are always comfortable in this world, well, let's just say you're going to be quite uncomfortable around the person of Jesus because he brings a completely different value system. Not only does John look unusual, but his behavior is unusual too. It says this in verse 5, people went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. That's a lot of people. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. Now, you have to understand that this was really unique. Normally, the place you would go to confess your sins was over there on the mountain at the temple. John's doing this thing down by the river. Historians tell us there is no precedent for this kind of activity. All of a sudden, can you imagine? There's this wild-eyed, crazy preacher out in the countryside. This is a big deal. There was a disturbance. If this was happening in our day, we would have got a push notification on our phone. And here's what the news would say. Headline, the kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God is here. Can you say that with me? The kingdom of God is here. That word kingdom 
is so important, and we'll see that again and again throughout the Gospel of Matthew. First, you need to realize there were very specific and concrete expectations when it came to the Jewish hope of the kingdom in the Old Testament. Passages like Daniel chapter 2 come to mind, where the kingdom of God rolls down like a mighty stone and grows into a mountain and destroys all the kingdoms of this world, proving once and for all who really is the one on the throne. So, if someone comes preaching about this kingdom being at hand, what do you think that they thought What other kingdom must be coming to an end? The kingdom of the Roman Empire. This was their thinking. This is what the prophets spoke about long ago. That God's rule would one day come to earth. This is what got people's attention. Uh, The prophet Isaiah said it this way. Our God reigns. In other words, if there was an organizational chart for the universe... God would be at the top of the pyramid because he alone is in the position of the absolute ruler. Uh, There are so many scriptures that prophesy this and testify to this truth. Psalm 93 to 99, we call the enthronement psalms. They say things like Psalm 96.10, say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Psalm 97.1, the Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice. Psalm 99.1, the Lord reigns, let the peoples tremble. See, the psalmist and the prophets were all declaring this one truth, essentially saying this, hey, sorry about your gods, but our God reigns. Hey, sorry about your king, but our God is actually king. And one day his kingdom will come, and he will reign over all. There will be no boundaries to his jurisdiction. He will reign over every creature and every person, and over the whole universe, his kingdom rules over all. This is the message that John is Bringing in, in, in Matthew 3, this is the same message Jesus will say in Matthew 4. He says the exact same words, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And in a sense, this is a message that we are to also bring today. Now, I realize there are some already and not yet aspects of his kingdom. And one day his kingdom will come in all of its glory and power. And this current world will be destroyed and made new. And we look forward to that. But still, we are to bring the good news of this kingdom now to those around us in our spheres of influence. Now, you might say, well, why do we want to do that? Why polish brass on a sinking ship? And the answer is, it's the same reason you go jogging even though you know you're going to die one day. God has given you this life now, and your calling now is to bring his kingdom to those around you. This is our challenge. This is our privilege as the people of God to share through both uh, proclamation and demonstration the kingdom of God in every area of our lives. We bring the good news of the kingdom to the hurting, to the broken, to the outcast. We bring the good news of the kingdom when we feed the hungry or welcome the stranger or stand up for those who are powerless. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. That is our message. It all started way back in the days of John the Baptist. The reason it started then is because the king had come. See, Matthew begins his gospel in chapter 1, verse 1, with this pregnant sentence. He says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, usually... When we see these kind of long genealogies, 42 generations long, we get to this part in our Bible and we go, yeah, 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 yada, 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 get to the good stuff. I don't even know how to pronounce these names. But when we think like that, we miss something. What Matthew is saying is that the big news from Ancestry.com is in. 
This baby is no ordinary baby. This guy has royal blood flowing through his veins. He is a son of Abraham. He is a son also of David, the royal line. God had made a promise to Abraham. We looked at that last week. God had made a different promise to David saying, one of your sons will rule on the throne forever. So Matthew is saying, Jesus is that rightful heir. It reminds me of this poem that I love from the well-known trilogy, The Lord of the Rings. If you've seen that or if you've read those books, you know the context. There's this poem in that series because part of that storyline was that there's this chaos and unrest all throughout the land because there was no king in the land of Gondor. And so as a result, the throne was unoccupied, but they still had this hope, they still had this prophecy that one day things would be different. And there's this poem, and the poem reads like this. I'll put it on the screen for you. It says... Next slide. It's that good. Wait for it. Here we go. The poem goes like this. From the ashes a fire shall be woken. A light from the shadows shall spring. Renewed shall be the blade that was broken. The crownless again shall be king. What do you think Tolkien, the follower of Christ, was thinking about when he penned this story? This is what Matthew is saying. The fullness of time has come. Matthew has just sent a push notification to your phone. Big news. There is an heir in the line of David here. Do I have your attention, Matthew says. And those who would read this would go, wow, this is amazing stuff. But, as you might guess, not everyone was excited as we are about this news, about the king of the Jews, especially the guy who was currently the king of the Jews. His name was Herod the Great. We meet him in chapter 2. It says this in chapter 2, verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? These wise men come from, a, from afar because there's this star. In other words, they have this general revelation. And they respond expecting that a king would be born. And they go and ask King Herod, where is this supposed to happen? Where is he? And ultimately... He finds out what's going on, and then he orders all of the boys, aged two and under, to be slaughtered in the region of Bethlehem, which seems very extreme. But yet, that's very consistent with what we know in history with this man, Herod. We actually know he was a very volatile political figure, and Herod grew increasingly cruel and paranoid, especially in his old age. He was bent on retaining power, and his biggest nightmare was losing that power to someone. In my reading this week, I was reminded that Herod actually executed his own wife. And he had his three sons killed as well. You know that apron that our wives wear in the kitchen that says on the front, when mama ain't happy, nobody's happy? (laughs) That phrase was originally coined in the first century. And it said, when Herod ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. Because he could do some damage. His behavior here in Matthew 2 is very consistent with what we know about him from secular sources. But, but, but in the providence of God, God warns Joseph in a dream to flee and take Jesus down to Egypt and escape in the middle of the night. And they do, and he's spared because of the sovereignty of our God. But let's just pause for a moment before we leave chapter 2 and think about Herod's behavior. Isn't it odd 
Isn't it odd what Herod is doing? This is actually a good representation of the insanity of unbelief. Because on the one hand, Herod seems to be frightened. But on the other hand, Herod does not seem to be frightened enough. Think about it. If there really was a prophesied king from the line of David that would come, and before he came, there was a star in the heavens pointing in the direction of his birth, does this human man, Herod, actually have any chance to snuff him out? No. But yet he tries, doesn't he? That is the folly of the wicked. They believe just enough to be terrified and angry, but they don't believe enough to realize the utter futility of fighting against God in order that they might submit their lives over to him. Pastor Bob explained this a couple weeks ago in Psalm 2. There's something inside of us that craves rebellion against this king. But yet there's another part of us that longs for his rescue. And so Herod the Great becomes this interesting case study in the kind of self-deception which characterizes the wicked. As someone once said, the cry of the atheist today is this, there is no God, and I hate him. (laughs) Maybe you've seen that movie, God's Not Dead, that illustrates this mindset well. If you've seen the film, you know there's this college professor who's an atheist, and he gets a kick out of making fun and challenging the faith of believers in his classroom. And there's this one particular scene where a Christian kid is asking him, what is his problem with God? And the guy says, I have nothing but hatred for God, nothing but hatred. He took everything away from me. I hate him. And then this young student says, how can you have such hatred for someone you don't even think exists? See, that's the insanity of unbelief. This is what's going on in Matthew 2. And Matthew's setting up for us this contrast. The king is here. What will be your response? Will you respond like Herod and reject him? Or will you respond like the Magi and fall at his feet in worship? And right away we have a choice to make, but the message is the same for everyone. The kingdom of God is at hand. Your choice. Now, on the one hand, there's this hugely encouraging tone and this announcement that the kingdom of God is here. I mean, salvation is here. But at the same time, there's also this warning that we in our 21st century culture do not want to hear whatsoever. We have no tolerance for this particular warning, but yet it is here in the text. And so the message is not just the kingdom of of God is here. Uh, The counterpart is also that the damnation of his enemies is near. We see that here. John the Baptist is down by the river. Remember, he's preaching. He's baptizing. News gets out about what he is doing. It gets to the religious leaders. They go down to check him out and see what he is doing down there, not so that they can get baptized, not so that they can confess their sins, so that they might investigate. And when they come down, he's got something for them to hear. Look at verse 7. But when the When he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to come from the flee from the coming wrath? Whoa. Talk about kicking things up a notch, John. These were the holiest people in the area. Nobody talks to these guys like this. Yet here he calls them a brood of vipers. In other words, they're spreading poison all over the place. Then he says this in verse 8. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. 
can you feel the tension in the air here? And can you feel that their, their spines would raise up and their backs would bristle at this and say, who do you think you are, John? We are the chosen people. And John says this in verse 9. And do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. See, God is not impressed with their family lineage. That's true back then, that's true today. There's a saying, God has no grandchildren. That's important because in America today, if you look at the Gallup polls, it still says that Christianity is the dominant religion in our country. But you got to wonder, how many of those people who check that box are actually genuine followers of Jesus? We're not saved by our parents' faith. We must come to God like a turnstile that only lets in one person into the subway at a time. Individually, we must come. Then John gives them this warning. Verse 10. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. You ever chop down a tree, take an axe, or take a chainsaw, and by the time you get to the bottom of that, it's not going to be long until that thing's coming down. That's what John is saying. It's urgent. The judgment of God is near. What's the solution? Well, he tells us in verse 11. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. John, although he's the greatest prophet that has ever lived, says, I'm not worthy to untie this man's shoes, which meant I'm not even worthy to be his slave. Even though he is the greatest voice, he is just a voice. Jesus is the only redeemer. God has many servants, but one king. And every prophet and all of us will bow our knees. He will come, and when he does, John says, he will bring the Spirit and fire for everyone. Grant Osborne explains what this means in this way. Everyone will experience the fire of the Spirit. The saved will have the refiner's fire, the purifying work of the Spirit. But for the unsaved, it will be fiery judgment. So here in chapter 3, we have John. He comes to the scene. He's urgently calling the people to repent because, yes, salvation is here, but also because damnation is near to everyone who remains in their sin. So hear me say this clearly. Yes, the kingdom of heaven is good news. But I would not be being honest with the text if I did not point out this other reality here as well. Instead, I want us to realize from the very beginning here that this message of the kingdom is good news for all who repent but it is bad news for those who will not repent. In other words, it's good news for all who will trust in Jesus and be saved from their sins, but it is bad news for those who will turn away from Jesus and remain in their sins. The message is the kingdom of God is here and the damnation of his enemies is near and the only appropriate response for them back then and for us today is the same. It is this, one word, repent. Repent. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. How do we do that? The manner in which we make straight paths for the Lord is through our own repentance. 
Jesus will give the same message in Matthew chapter 4. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, what does that word repentance mean? The word repentance is the word metanoia, which was a call for a complete change of mind. But it is more than just a mental activity. It involves a complete U-turn in my life. It is to turn around. It is a It is a turning from the sin that I once loved toward the God that I once hated. It is a a turning, did I say that right? It is a turning from the sin that I once loved toward the God that I once hated. And the sin that I once loved and adored, I now hate. And the God that I once hated, I now love. That is repentance. But that is not just a one-time activity. That is a complete lifestyle for the disciple of Jesus Christ. I know a lot of Christians who struggle with an ongoing sin in their lives, and they wonder, why do I still struggle with this? One time I heard a pastor address this issue, and someone asked him, why do I keep sinning in the same way with this same sin? And the pastor says, that's because you need to go deeper in your repentance. You need to go deeper in your repentance. The idea of this lifestyle of repentance is central to the Christian faith. 500 years ago, when Luther began the Protestant Reformation, the very first of his 95 theses was about that. He said this, number one, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Repentance is not just a place I go and visit on vacation. Repentance is my permanent address as a Christian. So let me ask you to just Ask yourself a hard question. Let me issue a challenge. Here we are at the beginning of a brand new year. It's 2019. It's going to be awesome to see what God does in our church and in your life. If you're here today and you describe yourself as a Christian, is it possible that before God and before Christ, you need to acknowledge your need for a deeper repentance this year? Is it possible you've presumed, you've assumed things were right between you and God, but there are areas in your life that keep coming up because you have not deeply repented of those sins? This is what we need to do. This is how we're going to make 2019 very, very different. Here's a few qualities about repentance from this text, just to drill down a little deeper here. We learn here that repentance is at least three things. Number one, it is urgent. Remember, John said the winnowing fork is in his hand. Ever seen a winnowing fork? The farmer picks up the wheat and the chaff and throws them both in the air, and uh, the good stuff falls to the ground, and the chaff gets blown away. He says he's already got the fork in his hand. The point that John is making here is you don't have much time. You need to repent now. It's urgent. The second quality about repentance I, I see in this text is that repentance is decisive. He's calling people toward water baptism, a very radical and decisive way of saying, I need to acknowledge my own need to be cleansed from my sin. This was symbolic of their sorrow because of their iniquity. This is a step that we still practice to this day, baptism, a public profession of faith. If you have never taken that step as a believer to profess your faith in baptism, we would encourage you to do so. If you have not done that, please come talk to me. There are some baptism packets in the back. Take one of those. They will tell you everything you need to know. But repentance is decisive. Thirdly, repentance must be sincere. John said, produce the fruit 
in keeping with repentance. In other words, it's not a half-hearted thing. It's not just talking the talk. It's walking the walk. Dr. Dan Doriani writes in his commentary on Matthew this, quote, Pastors have too much experience with people who seem both sad and sorry for their sin, but might be, might be neither. Addicts and congenital liars know how to feign grief to get what they want from their dupes. See, there is a difference in the Scripture between what's called worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. 2 Corinthians 7 describes the difference this way. Paul says, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. Worldly sorrow is just being sorry for the consequences of your sin. Godly sorrow is truly wanting to turn my life around and please the God that has rescued me. It's not like Donald Trump when he gets caught saying terrible things about a woman and him saying, oh, that was just locker room talk. It's not like Bill Clinton who gets caught in a scandal and says, I did not have sex with that woman, Miss Lewinsky. Pick on both sides there. That's not the kind of repentance that God requires. Uh, Question 76 of Westminster defines repentance this way. This is a mouthful, but pay attention if you can. Repentance unto life is a saving grace, wrought in the heart of a sinner by the Spirit and Word of God, whereby, out of the sight and sense, not only of the danger, but also of the filthiness and odiousness of his sins, and upon the apprehension of God's mercy in Christ to such as are penitent, he so grieves for and hates his sins as that he turns from them all to God, purposing and endeavoring constantly to walk with him in all the ways of new obedience. I know that's a mouthful on the screen, so let me just summarize what that means. Repentance is in essence saying this, I'm sorry for the wrong that I've done. It's not sorry I got caught. It's not sorry you're hurt about that. It's not sorry, but I didn't know what else to do. Repentance, genuine repentance, is saying I was wrong, no excuses, no equivocations, I'm sorry, period, full stop. Repent, for the kingdom of God is here. And when we do so, there is really good news. Take a look at how chapter 3 of Matthew concludes. Let me just show you how this story finishes. The chapter unfolds like this in verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. You've got to just picture the scene. John is out there preaching and he's baptizing. And then this happens. Jesus himself comes to be baptized. Do you realize how significant this event is right here? This is the first time Jesus goes public. At this point, John knows who Jesus is, and Jesus knows who Jesus is, but that's it. And that is about to change. The whole world is about to change right here at this moment. Can you just think about how fragile this moment is? At this point, there was just two men in a time where their lives could have been snuffed out with ease. So much hangs in the balance with just these two men. And yet here they are, and John looks out, and John sees Jesus coming. 14. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. You come to me. 
This is such a pregnant moment. John realizes who this was and is. And John just feels so unworthy to be part of this story, as we all do. Remember, he said, I'm unworthy to be untie, untie your sandals. I'm not, I'm not, I shouldn't even be your slave because of who you are. And the question that we'll see throughout the book of Matthew is exactly that question, who is Jesus? And Matthew is trying to answer it for us. And many, many people get that question wrong. Jesus will ask himself once in Matthew 16, who do you say that I am? They ask, who is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? There's really only one group of people who get it right in the Synoptic Gospels, the demons. They say, we know who you are, the Holy One of God. And right here, John the Baptizer, John the Baptizer realized who, who's in the water with him. It says this in verse 15, Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. Because that's what you do when Jesus gives you a command. What this means to fulfill all righteousness is twofold. First, obviously it means he has come to fulfill all of the righteous prophecies of the Old Testament about the Messiah. We've seen some of those just in chapter 1 and 2. But it also means that he has come to fulfill all of the righteous requirements of the law on behalf of his people. Right here in this moment when he is baptized, as such, he is publicly identifying with humanity so that he might be our representative and savior for our sins. I didn't have time to go through that whole family tree of Matthew 1. I hope you will study that on your own. But when you do, you will see some interesting characters that show up in the family lineage in Matthew chapter 1. And you wonder, why is his lineage full of people so associated with scandal? And, you know, there's even Gentiles and foreigners in here. I mean, for example, Matthew takes the time to, to name uh, Tamar, who shows up in verse 3, who was involved with with incest, I'll show you this on the next slide. You also see that Rahab is in there, a prostitute. Ruth makes the cut, a Gentile, a Moabite woman. and The wife of Uriah, the Hittite, Bathsheba, who committed adultery. Why are these names included in the line that leads to Jesus the Christ? Answer, for the same reason that your name or my name is included in the line that leads from Christ. It is only by the grace, the sovereign grace and mercy and love of our almighty God. Praise God that he loves to save sinners and outcasts. That's why the angel says at the end of chapter 1, you shall call his name Jesus, which means Savior, because, I'll show it to you on the screen, because this Jesus will save his people from their sins. How? By fulfilling all righteousness. Giving us his righteousness in exchange for our sin. What an exchange that's being symbolized right here in this baptism. Then it says this in verse 16. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. Can you just imagine this moment right here? You can almost hear the heavens shaking, can't you? 
God the Father, God the Spirit, God the Son are all here together in one place. The Spirit of God who once hovered hovered over creation in Genesis chapter 1 has come again to begin the great work of the new creation. The Spirit is here and God the Father who hasn't spoken anything in 400 years finally has something to say and here's what he has to say. As soon as he speaks, he wants to tell everyone who this man is and it says in verse 17, a voice came from heaven and it said this, this is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Wow. Something's going on. Everybody needs to stop and take notice. Everybody needs to look at what's going down right here. The king is here and the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Let me invite the worship team to come up for one more song. But this is what we're going to do for the next few months together. We're going to stop together as a church and we're going to look at this beloved son and we're going to listen to him and we're going to study him and we're going to behold the face of God. And our hope and our prayer is that as a result, we will never be the same. And so my invitation for you this morning is here we are at the beginning of a year, 2019, the odometer has turned over. Would you focus with us on this king for the next few months together and what his kingdom calls us to do collectively and individually? Would you take a commitment to Would you make a commitment to to be with us as a church and and go through this gospel and and study this in your own devotional time with God? We've even compiled some study notes for you in your own personal study. There's a reading plan in there. You can pick one up on your way out there in the back. There's so much more to learn about Jesus. Throughout this series, there'll be sermons that he will preach. There'll be parables he will tell. There'll be people that he will heal There will be tables that he will turn over and there will be a cross that one day he dies on for the sins of the world. And we'll get to all that. But today we're just getting started as we realize the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Amen? Can we pray?